0: Here the good news that comes from the 20th chapter of John, verses one through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in, saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow us to once again hear the good news that the Lord is risen, and that we may experience and see him in our midst and recognize him once again. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, when I was in seminary, I was recruited to be in a talent show. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Never before had I been recruited to be in a talent show, and since it had long been believed that I had no talent, I was actually anxious to learn what talent they wanted me to display. And when I asked them that question, they kind of looked at me rather sheepishly and with some stuttered hesitation said that actually what they wanted me for was comic relief. (laughs) They wanted me to play a magician who had no talent, a magician who couldn't get his tricks to work. And they had the whole act worked out for me. I was going to do a card trick, you know, had someone pick a card, put it back on the deck and shuffle it and then not be able to find it. I was gonna pour water into a magician's hat, and you know, not wanna do a little wa- waving of my wand, and then put it on my head and drench myself. I was gonna call a man out from the audience that had a tie on, and then I would cut the tie in half, and then I'd wave my wand magically, and then it would probably not come back together again. And the final act, I was to take my assistant, a young high school student, and I was to place her in a closet on one side of the stage, and then I was gonna do a little hocus-pocus and then walk over to the other side of the stage, open the door, and she was supposed to come out, which, of course, she wouldn't. So that's exactly what we did. I did the car trick, couldn't find the card. I, you know, filled the hat with water, drenched myself, you know, cut the guy's tie in a half, don't worry, he was a plant, and ended up scotch-taping that tie back together again. I put the young assistant into the closet and did a little hocus-pocus, went over to the other side of the stage, and out she came. (laughs) You're not supposed to come out. This closet was supposed to be empty. How the heck did that happen? No magician has ever been more surprised that his magic worked than mine. What I didn't know was that each closet had a window that opened out into the same courtyard, and so as I was doing my hocus-pocus, she was climbing out one window, making her way over, climbing through the other window, and appearing in that closet and back through that door. The joke was on me. What do you do when someone who was supposed to be over there turns out to be over here? We do this a lot with surprise parties, right? It's Aunt Matilda's big birthday, but as far as she knows, no one's really taking notice. Everybody's off doing their own thing until the moment she walks into the house, and there they all are, family and friends, surprise! And then who should show up but that faraway relative who had just no way of getting there, and all of a sudden, he walks in the door. But you were supposed to be there, Aunt Matilda says. But now, you're here. A few years ago I went to a Tampa Bay Lightning hockey game. Now these days At professional sports games, there's no such thing as any break in the action. Every moment is filled with something. There's always some game to be played whenever the game isn't being played. So at one point between two of the periods, there came the announcement of one of these, you know, corny, distracting games. They play on the ice, you know, to kind of keep people engaged, some sort of silly competition to distract us from ourselves. And in this instant, they brought out one onto the ice a brother and a sister, the brother around 14, the sister around 12, and the competition was to see who could shoot the most pucks into the net from center ice one shooting into one net the other shooting into the other neck uh, other net so they lined up the brother and sister back to back with each other each with their sticks and hands and pucks before them and on the count of three the announcer shouts you begin and the crowd is cheering ready he said one two stop and all of a sudden silence Turn around, the announcer says, and the brother and sister turn around, and in that pregnant pause, what they could see 40 feet away, standing on the ice, was their Air Force father home from Afghanistan. And the girl stares in wonder, And she starts to run, and the ice can't make that run any faster. And she just is trying to get to her father, and she slips and she slides, and she buries her face into her father's chest, and she holds on for dear life. And the boy right behind holds on for dear life. You were supposed to be there, but now you're here. So maybe we can put ourselves with Mary Magdalene in that graveyard a couple of millennia ago, just disoriented to say the least. She had been to the cross, she had witnessed the whole grisly thing, she had seen the spikes driven through the hands and feet, she had seen Jesus breathe his last, she had seen his lifeless body taken down and put into the hands of Joseph and Nicodemus and maybe she even followed them to see where they laid him, what tomb would seal his fate. Seal his fate would be the right way to put it, I suppose, for true, it's true, isn't it, that this way of Jesus was only going to get him into trouble. Everybody warned him about that. You just don't go around saying, love your enemy, healing on the Sabbath, eating with suspicious characters, saying the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and touching lepers and cleaning out the temple and talking to Samaritan women. You just don't do that and not think you're not going to get into trouble someday you're going to get what you're what's yours someday your fate will be sealed and sealed it was in that dark cold tomb it's the way those things are supposed to go right no good deed goes unpunished nice guys finish last to quote the eminent theologian leo de rocher just ask Stephen the Martyr, just ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just ask Oscar uh, Oscar Romero, just ask Martin Luther King Jr. Someday you're going to get it. Someday your fate will be sealed. It's always been, right? It's always been the argument against love. It's always been the argument against love. Love is all well and good, they say, but, you know, look where it gets you in the end. Love may be good in church, yeah, 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 but love ain't good out there. Turning the other cheek just gets you another sore cheek. Giving away your coat and cloak only catches you a cold. When you love, you seal your fate in the end. It's the old argument against love, which means, of course, it's the old argument against God. We quote from the Bible and we say God is love in one breath and then maybe not realize that in the next breath we're saying love ain't worth it. God is love, but love isn't worth it. So without knowing it, we've argued against God. We've argued against the man who touches the lepers, the man who walks, talks to the wrong people, the man who forgives his executioners, the man writhing on the cross. But now all that gets thrown up in the air when we're walking through that garden with Mary and who should appear but the one who looks like Jesus, someone who sounds like Jesus, and like Mary, at first, we just can't believe it. Like Mary, our eyes may be playing tricks on us, we think. Like Mary, we're, we were told that the fate was sealed, so the best we can come up with is there, oh, there's gotta be some other explanation. It must be the gardener, it must be tears in our eyes, it must be wishful thinking. Like Mary, we say, oh, you were supposed to be there, but, but are you here? Can you be here? And now we have to go back and check our calculations. Now we have to go back and explore our presuppositions. Now we have to go back and and wonder about our basic assumptions. If the stone is rolled away, and love is walking around, why we have to go back to the drawing board because there's a different answer now to the problem. The world says love ain't worth it, but Easter says love is the only thing worth anything. Easter tells us that love knows no grave. If Jesus, let's do the math here, if Jesus equals God and God equals love and Jesus knows no grave, ergo, love knows no grave. Crave love never ends. Paul writes, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, which explains, of course, why Jesus could not stop talking about it. Love your neighbor. Love one another. Love your enemy. Oh, it may be that we want to call him a hopeless romantic, but there he is now, wandering around in a graveyard. There he is calling our name, which means that whatever he said about love was true. Whatever he said about Mary was true, that she, that we are the children of God. We are the apple of God's eye, and love's fate is never sealed. It's been that case from the very beginning. Astrophysicists have been arguing for a long time about the the Big Bang and and what was there before the Big Bang, but we religious folks have known all along, or at least suspected, that what was going on before the Big Bang was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spinning in a dance, a, a dance of love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, the lover, the beloved, and the act of love, the great and furious dance of love, one great centrifuge of love, Spinning, 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 and then bang! And the universe explodes with love, and the universe expands with love, and the universe is held together with love. Scientists say it's got gravity involved, and they're right, but on Easter, we say it's love. Love is what birth the universe, love is what expands the universe, love is what holds the universe together. You can resist it, you can ignore it, you can fight against it, you can bury it deep in a cold, dark tomb, but you might as well try to walk against a gale When you might as well try to block out the sun. That's what Mary sees when she sees the gardener. She sees the repudiation of all the philosophies, all the economies, all the social theories of civilization when she sees. that Rabbi, she knows that love wins." Bernie Siegel in his book tells of a survivor of a concentration camp in World War II, a man who went by the name of Wild Bill In his camp, Wild Bill was known as the great encourager, the one who made sure that everyone else was taken care of before he was taken care of. And even though he deprived himself of basic needs, he seemed to be the healthiest one in the camp. And why, they asked later, why why did he live so unselfishly in the camp? He replied, you know, when the Germans came and they took my wife and two daughters and three sons and put them against the wall and shot them in front of me. I had to decide, right then and there, whether to allow myself to hate those soldiers who had done this, and it was an easy decision. I was a lawyer, in my practice I had seen too often what hate could do to people's minds and bodies. Hate had just killed the six people that mattered most to me in the world. I decided then, And there I would spend the rest of my life, whether it was a few days or whether it was a few years, I would spend the rest of my life loving every single person with whom I came in contact. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never and wasn't it Pierre Teilhard de Chardin who said, "Some day, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and the gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then for the second time in history, we will have discovered fire the fire of creation, the fire of the burning bush, the fire of that pillar in the wilderness, the fire of Pentecost. We will have discovered fire again when we harness the force of love. And the world needs some fire, friends, doesn't it? The world needs a prairie fire. The world needs a gale wind, the blaze of the sun, for we have done too well locking up this love in our own cold, dark tombs. We have sealed away the Savior. We have believed the headlines. We have taken the poison of toxic discourse. We have blinded ourselves to our neighbor. We have gotten stuck at Golgotha. We have assumed that the sealed stone has taken the day. We have bought the lie that love breathed its last. But today, oh, today we're walking with Mary. Today we're seeing something almost impossible to believe. Today the stone is rolled away. Today a familiar face greets us. Today we're hearing our name. Today love has come back to town. And today, like some teenage girl walking out of a closet, some Air Force father slipping toward us on the ice, Jesus is risen. And he's no longer there. He's here, and that means here. That means love is here, and love will always be here, and love will always be there. Love will always be there if we take it there, if we take it there. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed.